Welcome to the Maximize Medicare podcast. Today, a special guest, Rick Cameron, who is a healthcare consultant and a current Medicare beneficiary. My name is Jay O. I am the author of Maximize Your Medicare. The new edition, 2020-2021 edition, has been published by Allworth Press, available anywhere that you can buy a book. The official website for the book is www.maximizeyourmedicare.com. Uh, there's Rick Cameron. He is a person with a decades, decades of healthcare experience. He's calling. He has joined us from St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, Jay. Nice to be here today. Remind us, remind me of the and the audience, what type of experience, decades I remember, what almost, what, 40 years of experience in healthcare industry. Why don't you give me the you know, top-down view of what that was? Uh, sure, Jay. Thank you. I started my career, uh, you know, working in hospitals um, and in uh, physician practices for the first uh, uh, ten or fifteen years, um, let's say, and then spent some time uh, working uh, in the insurance industry um, with uh, insurance company and third-party administrator, uh, and then just over twenty years, last twenty years in consulting and uh, working for small to large. Uh, uh, consulting companies on a variety of uh, different types of uh, consulting activities that involve the uh, hospital physician space for the most part. That includes planning, business development, um, operations improvement, uh, physician compensation, design, and uh, and the like. So, so that's, you've been, that's what I've been doing. You've been deep in the weeds in healthcare providers and the entire process. And now you're a Medicare consumer. That's right, Jay. I've, I've crossed that lovely threshold and uh, age and circumstances, and I'm now uh, into my uh, second year uh, under Medicare. As a consumer, you know, you've been dealing with a lot of technical details. How did you find the enrollment process? I mean, we've known each other for a couple of years, and we won't get, we'll get into the background of that perhaps, but from your own personal experience in dealing with actually the Social Security Administration and that entire process? Yeah, so when, when my wife and I uh, decided to uh, uh, um, get, get into, uh, you know, full Medicare a year ago, just over a year ago, we were transitioning from uh, employer-based insurance, which I've had for the whole 40-some-odd years of my working sure. career, Sure. And uh, and we started dealing with well we gotta we gotta sign up for Medicare Part B, we gotta pick a Medicare Part D a prescription plan, we gotta look into supplemental coverage, uh, and we gotta deal with uh, you know if we wanted to with dental and optical kinds of things. So so it became um, the the Part B side was not too challenging to sign up because the website was there and you could sign up pretty easily. Um, but getting the uh, um, getting the uh, payments worked out for the you know my my monthly or quarterly Part B uh, payments, including the Irma payments, was quite um, uh, took was a little rocky because it took a few months 
uh, for Medicare and Social Security to get the billing worked out, get the rates worked out uh, with me and my wife. Um, we probably received, you know, four or five different statements, uh, you know, pay, right. pay this. Well, wait a minute. No, pay this. No, wait, pay this kind of thing. Um, the but Part D coverage was more straightforward. Uh, the the drug uh, coverage was we signed up and they handled those premiums pretty easily and, and clearly from the get go. Uh, we still had Irma to pay, of course, which was yes. its own challenge to understand, but right. wasn't too bad. And Medicare, Medicare, uh, the supplemental was fine too. It went it went pretty smoothly, uh, as right. did the as did the other coverage. I generally tell persons in public when I speak that. We're not going to settle the economics of double taxation and Irma, you know, <laughs> on one phone conversation or one, uh, you know, one presentation. Right. You know, we're, right. the theory of economics, we're not going to be able to, you know, come to some agreement, you know, at, at any point no. in time. I don't think. But 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 I will tell you that one of the things that surprised me, and I had not read anything about it until I started to go down this path uh, over a year ago, was. The Irma payments are based upon uh, your income, of course, but it's income Prior. based uh, two, year, two years before. Yes. So if you retired, if you took Medicare in 2019, which I did, then they're looking at income from the IRS in 2017, and it's usually going to be higher than right. what you would earn in, in the first year of retirement. And, and it's a shock because you don't have to earn – very much above the first threshold to start paying lots of extra money for Irma. Um, and, and that was something that wasn't well explained or understood. Um, and, and it, uh, I'm sure I'm not the only person who, who, no. you know, had kind of adjust to that. Um, yep, but absolutely. it was, it was its own challenge. So. I, and in fact, you know, it has backed up the timeline, which is, you know, one of the nuances of the book is actually now, you know, people ask, well, how soon am I supposed to be thinking about this stuff? And now you've mm-hmm. now defined it due to Irma. And now you've got some other changes, something called the Secure Act, you know, at the very end of last year, that mm-hmm. the planning process and re- and receiving income is now has a related tax matter. And that tax matter means Irma in that case, for other mm-hmm. persons with HSA accounts, can't you know contribute to your HSA and so you've got these weird and extra factors in decision making mm-hmm. in your timeline it's not 10 years ago sign up for social security and medicare at the same time because full retirement age is 65 they both coincided now you right know, right you've got a lot of moving parts anyway well, and I would yeah, and I would ahead. recommend to any listeners I would recommend that they that they begin that planning process as early as they can and to to suggest that to others that they know who may be getting close to making that decision and doing that um the uh it's it's especially if you believe your income is above that th- first threshold in the first you know for the first couple of years that you're on medicare um so yep i thank you jay for that follow-up i didn't know about the the additional uh law that came into effect late last year good to know what happens up happening is that people are withdrawing from their qualified, their retirement funds. Uh-huh. Well, now all yep. of a sudden, you know, you don't have to withdraw at 70 and a half, depending on your age. It can mm-hmm. be, it can be delayed. And what ends mm-hmm. up happening is people mistakenly from their 
just due to not not knowing how the rules work, they draw excess money from their qualified funds, creating income events, which can then mm-hmm. also inadvertently trigger extra Irma. So now you can see it. The last, yes, the, last time, <laughs> the last time that I spoke was actually not in, not in front of the public, but in front of a conference of estate planners and CPAs. Mm. And I said, maybe you think you can just, you know, set Medicare over here into its own little silo. But now look, I'm introducing these other tax matters and financial planning matters, which you know, are telling you that it's leaking into these other topics, which can mm-hmm. change. It actually cha- it changes the way you distribute your income. It can change actually your portfolio selection process because of mm-hmm. you know, some of the ways that you get dividends, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you, the ripple effects, you know, are quite incredible. Anyway, well, I'm not. I'm not at the. I'm not seventy yet, Jay. I'm a little okay. sore. A couple of years right. under that, but I, but I, I, I was aware of the, the, the effective date to, for mandatory withdrawals out of IRAs was moved up a couple of years. Right. Moved back a couple of years. Excuse me. And sure. And and you're right. I mean that um, that will have implications for certain individuals who whose income from mandatory income from those accounts plus their social security plus their income from other things right or whatever Absolutely. you know could 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 really uh, create a taxable surprise for them if they're not if they're not too careful so Absolutely. yep yep so anyway the real reason for today and it has to do actually with your professional background because you are a very interesting combination you're this combination of a person who is a consumer of medicare as well as a person who is has you know professional experience right in with the healthcare providers so i thought mm-hmm. to ask you a couple of questions um and it occurred to me over this past open and or the medicare annual election period i had seen a letter a letter that was sent to a prospective client of mine and she brought out the letter and she said, Jay, what do you think about this letter? And started asking me about a Medicare Advantage plan. Now, the Medicare Advantage plan came from the carrier, but it was signed by the, the client's primary care physician. Mm-hmm. And it was for a relatively new plan in the area. And then, you know, the, there was contact information etc and the contact information was that to back to the carrier so from your experience you know is there this kind of close coordination between health care providers and you know the plans themselves um, the short answer is uh, yes I believe um, there uh, there can be or, and maybe it depends on the carrier and the providers and the community that they're trying to uh, serve and, and work in. Um, you know, there's a, there is a element of, of uh, the physician uh, patient um, relationship at play in something like that, where the physician is directly contacting the patient, not on a patient care matter, but on a business matter. Okay, and not on a billing matter like oh you owe me some money, right. <laughs> kind of thing, but sure. but on a 
you know, have you considered maybe uh, another another uh, provider for your coverage? And and by the way, I'm endorsing this one. That's kind of what it sounds like. It sounds like an endorsement. Um, and where, where I grew up, uh, you know, endorsements of payers um, can be done, um, but it's it's a con it's put into the context of two things. Uh, one is is the relationship that you want to uh, roll out to your patients, sure. one that you want to use to change other relationships going forward. So my, if I was a patient getting learning that, I might look at that and go, well, that's not my carrier. Is he telling me that he won't see me unless I pick this one, you know, in which case I might get anxious and nervous and scared and I don't want to change doctors kind of thing. That's, that's kind of one reaction potentially. Uh, the other one is, um, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, I would react in a in a pretty benign way. I might say, "Well, it's just my doctor letting me know that this is out there, and if I'm interested, fine. If not, I don't have to." And I would just, you know, if I'm not interested, I would, you know, toss it aside. Um, I, I do think that the business of healthcare is changing and has been changing, especially the last ten to fifteen years. Um, the insurance companies. Uh, relationships with providers has gotten closer, more uh, business real business like than they used to be. Um, you know, now, now you have many insurance companies actually are employing doctors directly. You know, Optum, which is a subsidiary right. of United Healthcare, is the largest one in the country right now. For example, and and there's uh, there's others. Um, so so this notion that the that the payer provider relationship is always going to remain sort of arm's length and, and, and kind of like, uh, like it used to be 20, 30 years ago is, is not, not realistic today. I do think so. So my reaction further as a informed consumer would be if I, if I worked for that group or that doctor, for example, and I was advising them or looking into this, I would also wonder about whether, how does this square up with the American Medical Association's code of ethics? Um, not every doctor in the country is a member of AMA, right. but many doctors, many doctors look to the AMA for for advice and guidance, and they do guidance. lobbying and those sorts of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I don't. This is another. This is one of those gray areas, in my view, depending upon kind of like it's up to the interpretation of the of the recipient uh, as to which path you might go down. Um, but I, I, I would be, uh, as an informed consumer, as I mentioned, just I would be a little bit concerned about just what it entails, um, and and what it uh, what it um, what I what I should sort of take from it, um, if you will. It is a little peculiar, uh, to be quite candid, mm-hmm. and like you pointed out, you know, Rick Cameron is not the average consumer, so let's just be very very clear. You you've had you yeah. know kind of the bird's eye view about how the pieces mm-hmm. fit. You know, right. my, my general, you know, exposure to the public from all different walks of life, irrespective of geog- geographical location is they don't have Rick's, you know, expertise experience. Mm-hmm. So you are kind of left with this notion that this looks like an advertisement, which might be okay pre-Medicare, but well, I guess before pre Affordable Care Act, but now, mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. the money is a tax dollar. 
right? I mean, some of this money is going to the plans from the federal government or mm -hmm. in the pre in under the Affordable Care Act, that would be from Medicaid expansion, potentially. You see what mm -hmm. I'm saying? In right. other words, yes. The, yes. the plan provider, the insurance company is a direct recipient of some of those revenues that mm -hmm. the doctor, the, the healthcare provider is sending out this letter. And like you pointed out, I mean, I think you know this and some of the listening audience know this, you know, my late father was medical doctor and he, I still remember when I was a child, he would complain, you know, we're not treated as well as we used to be. We're not respected by, you know, society in the same way. And I, I'm pretty sure this is not a new phrase that it, or language that any <laughs> that you're experienced or have heard. I'm sure you've heard it, but now it's just a little peculiar that a doc, the fact is that many people do look to their doctor. They've had this relationship for you know decades and mm -hmm. things like that. And now they get a letter with mm -hmm. uh, a carrier's identity when you know there are many carriers. It looks like favoritism, which just looks a little you know, weird. It just looks a odd to me. And I was just wondering, <laughs> is this just Jay talking to himself or is this? Well, uh, you know, so, so let, me, let me, yeah, I can respond further on this, Jay, now, now that we're talking about, I think the, I think the, you know, the market today for Medicare Advantage offerings in a given area will vary upon by the size of the area population wise, right? So I live here in St. Louis, right? And I would dare say, I don't know the exact number, but there's, there has to be at least a half a dozen Medicare Advantage products available in this market right now. Well, more, um, well more than that. I know where how many, but maybe, they're, they're well, way yeah. more than that. Right? And, we, and, we get, and we get solicitations from them every fall prior to enrollment for the last couple of years. Um, and uh, they, all, they all, you know, they, they, they flood our mailbox with stuff. Um, and so... But and then you turn around and then some other markets which are not as large as St. Louis, um, but still have, you know, thirty thousand to fifty thousand people in them kind of thing. They might be good candidates for a smaller number of MA plans, but there's still some out there. Sure. Um, I think that I think that where I was going with this is I think it also depends. The, the answer somewhat depends on what's motivating the doctor to sign this letter and send it to his patients, um, his or her patients. Um, and the motivation could be simply, you know, we've got this major contract now with um, this Medicare Advantage plan, and the contract says as a requirement that we got to send letters out to everybody. Um, so we're going to send it out, you know, and that's it. That's part of the deal. The other side of it could be that the doctor group actually has some, that the, that the ACO that they formed actually has the responsibility to provide these services directly. And there are a number of ACO organizations out there in the country today that are owned and operated by physician groups, primary care doctors in particular. Some of them have done quite well. Um, now, I don't know so, those markets. Rick, just for the, for the listening audience, yeah. if I can interrupt yeah. real quickly, Sorry. let's just break down Sorry. what ACO stands for. It's, it stands for Accountable Care Organization. And just briefly, mm -hmm. what does that you know actually entail for the people who are not aware? Yeah, it's actually a, a contractual organization that has a contract with with uh, either Medicare, Medicare in this case, to provide uh, services to um, uh, recipients that are assigned to the ACO or that see patients see patients that are within the ACO 
uh, and see doc and see hospitals within the ACO if it's got both both in it. And so it's a it's an outcome. It actually became uh, effective in Medicare prior to Accountable Care Act, but really has grown under the Accountable Care Act. Um, and and you can have different kinds of ACOs today that are um, and many provider groups actually are involved in a Medicare. Well, it used to be that Medicare, you, you could only be in one um, Medicare um, uh, certified uh, ACO. Okay. Um, and, and you could only be in one non-Medicare provide, non-Medicare. So a commercial insurance carrier could set up an ACO or some other party could set up an ACO and you could, you could use that vehicle to contract with patients and with payers um, in a given market. So there, that's, that's what they are. And they are more common today than they were before. And they're focused kind of, which makes, you know, intuitive sense, right? If, if I, rem- mm-hmm. if I understand correctly, they're focused on total outcome, right? I mean, from soup to nuts, right. what the health outcome at the efficient cost would be, at, which is different yes. than our existing healthcare system, right? Our existing healthcare system is a, you know, a la carte line item based, you, know, you get a bill for a particular service, you get another bill for the next service, but mm-hmm. an ACO is mm-hmm. kind of a bundled payments type of agreement, if I've understood correctly. That's that's true, Jay. Yes, that's correct. They they look they get they get formed and then they look to the payers or the insurance companies and they say, well, would you like to do a contract with us? And the insurance company says, we'll pay you so much money for all these lives, if you will, and uh, over the course of a year, and uh, for cost of care and outcomes of care, quality of care, and then the the ACO turns around and provides those services, and they figure out in, within the ACO how to pay the providers for those services. They do that themselves, um, and those those fees or those monies are split between the different types of providers: primary care, specialty care, ancillary providers such as lab and X-ray, and facilities such as hospitals. There's a long Even list. Home. <laughs> yeah, it's a long list. Yeah, everybody. So, so it's a it it can be it's its own challenge for an ACO because you've got a lot of data to manage now, and you got a responsibility to manage dollars that flow in and have to get distributed and so every and every one of those providers is simply a contractor within the ACO. They don't the ACO. typically own, own the ACO, or some, some of them right. do. Many of them don't. So so the contract itself becomes the critical connection, and uh, and that's and so so we don't know in the case that you mentioned with the primary care doctor sure. some patient his this letter no. what the background is, but but the, it could be one of several potential reasons why. And the underlying question that you're raising is, is this an appropriate use of the doctor-patient responsibility, the doctor-patient relationship? And I I think that's, I can't answer that question uh, directly. Tough. I think if I, I think you, know, right. you know. So. No, I agree that it's just a very tough thing, especially when you're talking about tax dollars and we're talking about yep. the, this amount of money. And not only that, but the, the audience largely doesn't understand Medicare still, right from the beginning, Mm -hmm. right from the beginning. And to have Mm -hmm. a letter from a person that they trust or they've trusted for decades where there are other things maybe going on, maybe not. I don't know, like you pointed out, you know, we don't know the exact situation. Well, and here's another dynamic that a lot of people don't always think about. And that is 
uh, primary care physicians are only one part of the healthcare access uh, for patients. Point, okay, right. um, patients patients can self self refer in most cases to other doctors, other specialists, kind of on their own. I know when I go to my primary care doctor, every time I go, they ask me, have you seen anybody else since we last saw you? Because they don't know who I've seen. And they may not necessarily uh, have gotten a, a letter from somebody that said, I saw your patient Rick Cameron today, and here's what I think kind of thing. It, it just, so, so there's, there is this um, uh, competition out there for patients that, uh, all physicians feel to different degrees, and this this again becomes part of the rationale for the practice that's making this decision about this letter and, and what it what it conveys for them. It's it's also about you know still being being competitive in the in the relevant market, to being competitive with others. Okay, right. and so Never I, I do think that. it's it, it, it's a very that. interesting it's a very interesting question you've raised. I actually have some friends of mine who are very active in uh, in the medical society and you know uh, AMA and uh, and other state uh, medical associations. I'm going to ask them this question. <laughs> I'm going to pose this little case study and see what they say. Um, well, we, because, well the, when you so, get that answer, you just shoot me an email and you know I will. I'll hit Definitely. record right away to get the to because I'd be fascinated yeah. to hear. Yeah. Definitely. The other thing that you kind of segue to, and you kind of mentioned that we got into ACOs, and we're not going to delve into the contracts, but you know what occurred to me, you named a lot of parties, which is normal. If you get mm -hmm. a knee replacement surgery, I mean, there's a number of different things to occur, from you know mm -hmm. preparation, you know diagnosis, this is what you need, all the way to rehab, so you can understand, you know, a number of different chefs in the kitchen. In any other situation, you know, it's very, my experience on other commercial matters is when we're trying to pay 10 different parties, it's hard to come agree into an agreement, to reach agreement, who gets what part of the pie. Mm -hmm. How does this happen at ACO? And, does, and can this work? And really my point is where I'm going here is from a practical point of view, from Rick's, Rick Cameron's professional experience, is this practical? Can we get there and do this? Um, I, let me answer the, the last question first, because um, it provides some context. I think ACOs, um, to this point, uh, have, have been what I would call a bridge strategy from traditional fee-for-service medicine right. to something else. Okay. Yep. And and in this and in this country, you know, we we um, we've been uh, we've been experimenting with other ways to get to the future. Um, and I think ECOs are one of several that have been prominently rolled out and and are in place today. Um, so there's a this is this is a uh, this is just happens to be the circumstance that we live in. If we were having this conversation 20 years ago. And we were looking back at the 20 years prior to that. This this wouldn't even be in the context of reality. Not, not even, no chance. We, no chance. We couldn't we couldn't dream this, Jay, at all. <laughs> right, okay? Right, um, okay. So so I think it's in the here and now. I think it's important for people to keep that in mind, mm. and and then and then look at the look at the part at the first part of your question, which is how does this work? Well, and I and I 
I'm not going to, you know, my answer there is going to be kind of an example uh, based upon what I've seen of some ACO deals and the like over the years. I've not, I've not done a lot of this work in the, I'm not an ACO expert and I've not done 50 of these or something. So please, the audience should take to be mindful of this, but the ones that I have seen, um, uh, basically physicians uh, under an ACO arrangement would get paid somewhere around their, uh, 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 get paid on the basis of a professional service for professional care provided. So they would get paid under, if you think about the fee for service medicine route, Right. When I when right. you see a patient in the office, you get paid something. When you do an operation in the operating room, you get paid something. Right. Um, right. Something similar to that would be for their what would be paid to the doctors for what they call their core services, their their day in and day out services under the ACO. Um, and, under the ACO, and that payment okay. could be you know a fixed schedule like a payment okay. schedule dollars per service, or it could be more of a global kind of a thing. Like you mentioned, joint a joint replacement program could be a global because that's kind of common, more commonly Very done common. now because Medi- Medicare rolled it out a few years ago. Um, so it could be like that, and then and then the and then the the hospital or facility would get something similar. They would get a payment or uh, for providing certain level of care, number of days of care, that sort of thing, uh, depending on the type of patient, medical. A medical patient would get paid differently than a surgical patient, you know, that sort of thing. Sure. Um, sure. And then there could be uh, incentive money available uh, within that plan, too, for providing care uh, at an appropriate level, uh, an appropriate cost, if you will, over a period of time for a group of patients. You know, there could be some incentive money available, too, depending upon the contract. Now, that, so, that I'm sure almost nobody knows. I'm sure nobody's, you know, no, yeah, there's not yeah, an expert right. in an ACO. So right. I guess what's interesting to me, and, and, you know, maybe only me, but the fact is, is that, you know, we've got 60 million people on Medicare and, you know, that mm-hmm. number is not going to decline anytime soon. We have mm-hmm. a bunch of headlines where outcomes aren't great in the United States and healthcare costs are mm-hmm. much higher Mm-hmm. Is ACOs then a path, like you said, <clears throat> to something else to drive down health care costs generally using this as the pathway to that? Is that what yeah. you're kind of implying th- or no? Uh, well, I think I think to some extent, yes. I mean, there's ACOs, Medicare Advantage and, and ACOs that 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 uh, predominantly focus on the Medicare population would 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 want to be in the in the middle of trying to provide as much appropriate care as possible um, and try to save money or stretch dollars you know stretch right. the dollars um, and and boy that becomes a, a tough set of goals when uh, when you're when you go into an ACO with a lot of Medicare patients you don't know uh, uh, whether you've got a bunch of healthy Medicare patients or you've got a bunch of sick Medicare patients. Um, and so, so the, the most ACOs, when they do this, they, they don't like to take on risk in the beginning of the relationship, but they, they, over time, they may want to take on some more risk. Risk means that for the dollars that they're involved in, they, they may have maybe put some of their core dollars or primary dollars at risk for outcomes of care, cost of care, as well as have incentives at risk for cost and outcomes of care. 
Um, so, so I think this, I think it is a shift and I think it is a not more than an experiment because you mentioned 60 million are on Medicare. I think over half of those or around half of those are on a Medicare Advantage plan today. So it's not like a couple million people. It's, it's quite a few people that are using them today. And, and there's, there's reasons that they use them um, that, that you'd have to ask some of those folks to detail them out. Um, and, uh, and, but I think that, I think, you know, what I keep hearing, what I hear, the experience has been largely um, positive. If you accept the fact that you're going to have to follow the ACO providers uh, guidelines for treatment and referrals and the like, you can't, you can't self-refer anymore, right? You've got to right. be, you got to, you know, you got to go where your primary care doctor tells you to go and you got to see the specialists that are under the contract with that particular product and the okay. hospitals as well. So there's a little bit of that. That's how they create the, that's how they create the, the ability and... to kind of manage it, you know, to manage it. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I still think it's a trend and I still think we're still looking for the right balance of what the, what the funding requirements are going to be coupled with improving the outcomes and longevity of care. Those, those, those statistics you referenced are, are sobering when you consider um, how we compare as a country to other countries in, uh, in the, uh, in the industrialized world. And it's, uh, um, and it, it's, and it, and it's not something that can change overnight, but it's something no, that certainly not. You know, has a big impact on us. Last thing, if if you're a consumer and a consumer's listened to it and you know patient enough to listen to our conversation up to this point, does this affect their me. life? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. Does this affect them? I mean, if they're they belong to a particular Medicare Advantage plan, and the Medicare Advantage plan you know contracts with an ACO, does it really matter? Uh, I guess you, you may have touched on it at the end of your comments there, right? Meaning that. Well, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think I think it does. I think it could for many people if you're if you if you consider where Medicare Advantage. My my observation again, I'm not a participant, but I've seen the literature and I get the stuff every year, and I thought I think Medicare Advantage programs have added more services in the last couple of years than they no had question. before. No question. So it's more like a one-stop shop for for consumers, you know, I can get my hearing aid there. Now I can hit my, right. my doctor, my primary care doctor's there. My cardiologist is there. Mm. My physical therapist is there. You know, it's all kind of through one doorway in their mind, if you will. And that, that has benefits and appeal to a lot of folks who mm. maybe up until making that decision, they were either not getting that care or I'm not able to afford it, or they were, spending a lot of time running around town going yeah, to different places exactly. and they weren't not, I'm not saying that all, all these ACOs are in one place. That's not, but the, the context is services get approved and authorized and run through one organization versus several. It can make it your life easier if you're, if you're trying to deal with multiple uh, situations that you might have. And so I think, I think consumer status, I haven't seen consumer satisfaction studies uh, on this. Um, I would say they probably range from very, very happy for those who are like the example I just gave you where they, they realize, my gosh, my world's really gotten easier now. And compared to some of the, some who probably don't like the fact that they still 
had to adjust and, you know, I've got a new primary care doctor now and they're busier or they're, they don't act, they, they don't treat me the way that my old one used to and I'm fighting that or some, something, you know, there's always something that people might complain about. Um, but you know what they do like? They do like the fact that it's costing me less money. No um, question about that. Out of, of, out of pocket. And and so for, for those folks, the advantages may be, financial advantages may well offset any other disadvantages that they might feel. Um, um, I think I think where everybody still, one more parenthetical real quick, I think everybody still needs to do a much better job of stepping up to the plate and really addressing what, what we've all heard, different different called different things, but it's care, what's called care coordination. It's coordinating the kinds of care that each person needs and, and having that be an, a direct result of intervention and actions with the system versus it being a sort of a happenstance or a, or a guess or a golly kind of thing. You know, some organizations have done care coordination for years. Others have not done it and they don't do it because they don't get paid for it and they haven't, they haven't realized any other financial pay. So this whole notion about coordinating care better, you know, referral relationships, the, the balance between when your primary care doctor says you need an x-ray and it takes you three weeks to get the x-ray versus getting it tomorrow kind of thing, or referral to a cardiologist and it takes you six, three months to get into somebody that you might select and they can get you into somebody next week. You know, I mean, right. this whole idea about, so, so right. reducing calling time, diff- right. Yeah. Calling time, as opposed time to calling is, around to find right. the right, time, link up the right people. Right. And then the whole, the whole background of all this, which, which people have heard ad nauseum probably is everybody now has a common, more commonly used electronic medical record or a health record. So it's easier for doctors and other providers who are in one kind of network or one organization to kind of like communicate with each other around all these results and, and share information back and forth and the like, which is also a major part of care coordination. Um, so that, those are, I mean, I think, I think the, the ACO environment is, is, is evolving. Uh, I, I do, as a traditional Medicare recipient, I'm concerned that, um, uh, that at some point I'll wake up one day and traditional has gone away and I've got to go with an ACO and I've got to change my doctors. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be forced to do that. Um, I think that is and I don't, certainly part of the difficulty in making changes. I don't, right. the pushback right. from persons like you is going to be substantial. I don't think there's well, any doubt about let, that. Let, let me just give you, give it to you in a nutshell. I mean, the, if Medicare right now and Social Security right now, Medicare right now pay, handles each of us as individuals. My wife and I are each individually contracted with Medicare. We each have individual payments flow into us and responsible for it. It's not a family plan, right? right? It's not a group plan. It's individual. So why can't they send my doctor an individual payment for Rick Cameron that covers his costs for a certain period of time and make my doctor fully accountable for those costs up to some, up to some limit. And maybe not, you know, he's not a, he's not a hospital, but he can contract. But why can't they make that my, send my doctor that same kind of payment and monitor it and administer it? I think, between you and me, I think they may be just, they're just too lazy. You know, they don't want to bother with that. Um, but on the surface, if my doctor wanted to do that, there's no reason why he or, he or she couldn't do it if they 
otherwise aren't able to be involved in a Medicare Advantage product today. And I don't, Medicare doesn't offer that option. So I think that's, that's kind of like what doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me as a somewhat informed consumer. The stakeholders are so large, each with, you know, valid points. And sure. you know, in our nation sure. where the opinions are so fragmented, just very, very difficult challenge. Rick, tell, right. tell us about what you're doing now. You no longer work full-time as a consultant, but you've got a small, personally, privately run consultancy business on the side. Is that what you're doing? Yes. Yes, I'm the I'm the president of uh, my own company called Berry Center Advisors, and and we're working with uh, um, hospitals and physician organizations um, and other insurance uh, other uh, consulting companies, as a matter of fact, around around different kinds of activities that help them uh, realize their uh, some of their goals um, uh, for this. In, in some of the spaces that we've just been talking about. Um, so, so my current client base includes actually several consulting companies where I'm doing work for them, helping to uh, grow service lines or develop new service lines. Um, I've got a, uh, I've got an engagement pending with a provider um, um, on some, uh, on some con- uh, managing, overseeing some contracts uh, over a period of time. Um, I've got a, uh, uh, I've got a, um, a several parties that want to work with me on some fairly traditional, fairly traditional financial uh, reviews of their performance of their medical group um, and how that could be, how they could uh, perform better. I've done a lot of work over the years in physician compensation design, kind of like how do doctors get paid for what they do. And um, I don't, I have one project project, uh, pending these are all pendings um uh, along that line and there will be more to come as time goes on here i've just got my company you know opened uh, the first of january this year so do you have started. a website yet i do not have a website no um i've got one started but i don't have it i haven't had time to finish it <laughs> <laughs> okay we'll have your I'm email a one man, on i'm that. a one i'm a one-man band jay i, right I now, got you so. we'll have your email yeah. in the uh text to the to the pod itself thank you Rick, Thank when you, you get get to the AMA and ask your your physician friends about those questions, I will as well. We'll oh. circle back together and reconvene. How's yep. that sound? We'll do it, Jay. Guarantee it. Thank you so much. I appreciate the chance today to talk with you and with your audience and uh, on on topics that are both near and dear to me. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review. This podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jay. Speak with you next time. Mm-hmm.